I blame Dr. Steve Lawson for this. He is uh, one of my heroes of the faith, one of the mentors that I've had the privilege of having in uh, my doctor ministry program. And what I blame him for is a story that he told that inspired me beyond measure. And that was that uh, years ago when he was preaching through the book of Psalms, and at that time preaching a Wednesday night service, a Sunday morning service, a Sunday night service, hint, 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 that would be a wonderful thing for us to do. But he couldn't get everybody to show up for Wednesday night service when he was preaching Psalms. And so what he would do is just on a given Sunday, switch all three sermons around to different times. I blame Steve Lawson for this because we're going to look at Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. I can't do that on Sunday night. We have to do that this morning and we will do our parenting message tonight. So if you have little kids and you thought you were going to learn the key, then you're going to have to come tonight. That's the way that works. Isaiah 53, we have been considering God's plan for Israel and the nations beginning in Isaiah 49. And as I was working my way through these three verses we're considering this morning, we're taking four Sundays to go through Isaiah 53. As I was considering verses four through six, it became apparent to me that this needs to be proclaimed from the highest rooftops. And so we will do that this morning. Isaiah 53 Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I think it's safe to say that in the same way that Handel's Messiah is considered the pinnacle of all composed music, so Isaiah 53 is the pinnacle of what the Old Testament tells us about Christ. And if we can take that analogy a step further, if we can say that the Hallelujah Chorus is the pinnacle of the pinnacle of the Messiah, then Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 is the pinnacle of the pinnacle of Isaiah 53. It explains the man who is Messiah. It explains the the mission of Messiah. It explains the misery of Messiah. It explains the mistreatment of Messiah. Everything we need to know. And it's in this text, by the way, that we see in the Old Testament all of our great Reformation principles. We see sola scriptura. We see that it is in Scripture alone that the gospel of the substitutionary death of Christ is revealed. And this Scripture perfectly describes the man, the mission, the misery, the mistreatment of Messiah 700 years before the fact. It's in Scripture alone that we see this truth. We see the great principle of sola gratia, that it is by grace alone that Christ would atone for our sins. There's no hint of merit, no hint of favor that somehow we bring to God. All that we bring, according to this text, are griefs, sorrows, transgressions, and iniquities. We see the great principle of sola fide, that it is by faith alone that one believes that Christ's payment for sin is necessary, that you must believe the gospel in order to be saved. You must believe these verses. You cannot go to heaven without believing Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. It's in this text we see the great principle of solus Christus through Christ alone, Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him, on him alone, the iniquity of us all. 
And we see the great principle of soli dea gloria, that this is to and for the glory of God alone, that all that God does is for his own glory. And what does he do? The Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. This text is the centerpiece. This is the clinching victory against sin. Now, if you love the gospel of Christ, this text will thrill you this morning. If this text doesn't thrill you, you need to check your pulse and check your salvation. Now, generally speaking, sermon titles are supposed to be simple and clarifying. I've chosen the opposite because we have a listening, thinking, intelligent church. We saw last time that Isaiah 53, 13 through, or 52, 13 rather through 53, 12, it forms one literary unit, one piece of thought and it's fashioned in a mirror image unit and we saw this that we saw three themes and two of them are repeated we see the exaltation of christ and this theme happens at the very beginning and at the very end of this text then we saw the humiliation of christ it's near the beginning and near the end and right in the middle the main point of christ our title this morning the propitiation of christ the propitiation of christ unveiled and so just so we can review that, that word, it's not just a big theological word to make you and me both feel inadequate. It's a word that's used in Scripture, so we need to understand this. The English Standard Version uses it four times, so it's not just a big theology word to make everybody feel bad. It's one we need to understand. It's used by Paul, it's used by the writer of Hebrews, and it's used by the Apostle John. And you can just about figure out what propitiation means from the context of how it's used. There's some common elements. See if you can listen for them. Romans 3.25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Listen for some of these same themes. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Apostle John says very simply in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. You're starting to catch a theme here. 1 John 4, 10, two chapters later, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we said last time that there's a couple of different Greek words used that we translate propitiation. One of them, is simply the word that means mercy seat. The, the cover of the ark where sacrificial blood was sprinkled to appease the wrath of God. Another word that's used, it just simply means to provide conciliation, to pacify, to satisfy. And so as we read those, you'll notice that there are four main characters in this topic of propitiation. There is the word propitiation. There is your sin. There is God. And there is Christ. And so how does all this fit together? What is propitiation? It is the satisfaction and appeasement of the wrath of God against your sin by pouring his wrath on Christ. It is the satisfaction and appeasement of the wrath of God against your sin by pouring his wrath on Christ. And this theme of propitiation is the central focus of Isaiah 53. Now, we saw last Sunday night, there are a couple of unique, distinctive qualities to this prophecy. First of all, much of it is written, especially chapter 53, 1 through 6, from the standpoint of a saddened and repentant Israel. We saw us and we and our. 
And it's in a sense as they're looking with sadness on what they're now realizing. And the second unique distinctive quality is that much of it is written with specific Hebrew verb forms that are rightly indicative of telling a story that has already happened. And so the English Bible translates that into a past tense story. And so what is this meant for? This is very much meant for the Jew looking back saying, oh no, we did it. We did crucify our Messiah. And there's a sorrow and there's a, there's a disastrous element to this. It's to be used of God for the repentance and salvation of his people. Now, as we read these verses this morning, you notice that just in these three short verses, the, the first person plural pronoun, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, it occurs 10 times. And so these three verses, it's saturated in the idea of substitution, that we have a need and Christ takes care of it, of Christ doing something for us, doing something on our behalf. And so in this text, we might even boil this down to a contrast of we and he, of we and he. And I want to give you four pairs of contrast between we and he. They're not short and pithy, Truth can't always be boiled down to a word or two, so I'll give you time to get these down if you are a note taker. Here's the first contrast between we and he. We are rescued from results of sin. We are rescued from results of sin and he has removed results of sin. And he has removed results of sin. This is our contrast. We are rescued from results of sin and he has removed results of sin. Verse 4 opens, surely he has borne our griefs. Now this word griefs is a very broad translation. It's used 24 times in the Old Testament, but most every time it's, it's used in a much more specific fashion. It, it speaks of disease. It speaks of sickness. It speaks of illness. Now, before we go any further with that, it would be a mistake to take the charismatic interpretation that one of the reasons Jesus died on the cross was so that we could be healed of all our diseases right now, especially if you go to the right uh, seminar or to the right church. This text is speaking of, of infinitely higher things, of the atonement from sin. And the conclusion that the atonement now gives us some sort of right to claim physical healing of all illness, that would be patently false. The Bible has plenty of evidence that suffering, including physical suffering, is part of our Christian life, is part of the life of the believer in Christ right now. And in fact, that idea that the suffering of Christ allows us to claim physical healing can be proven very, very simply by every person who has ever believed that either has or will die. And so it, they essentially would give evidence from that line of thinking that the atonement is insufficient. It wasn't enough. If it was totally sufficient, then I'm not going to die. But that's one extreme. We don't want to go to the other extreme, though, because just because you can't interpret this to mean that, that we can claim healing from disease based on Christ's work on the cross, that doesn't mean that physical infirmity, emotional infirmity, psychological infirmity, all the things that go along with being a sinner, doesn't mean all that is off the table for discussion. In fact, the primary problem in view with the word grief, which means sickness or illness and sorrow and pain, it doesn't seem to be the judicial position of a sinner before God. What is in view here is the real life consequences of sin. What actually happens as a result of sin? God told Adam that if he broke his law, he would die. What happened to Adam? He died. 
The consequences of sin are real. These words of griefs and sorrows, they encapsulate everything that mars our lives because of sin. That we do have diseases, we do age, we do have debilitating conditions, we do have pains, we do have sorrows which are emotional and physical. And we join with creation in groaning for a day when all of that is relieved, when the results of sin are mitigated and they're taken away. Now, why would Isaiah be speaking of something so lesser, so small, such as just physical illness, instead of the larger issue of sin? Well, because the text is telling us that Jesus, he's not just pronouncing us innocent of sin by virtue of his substitution. He's also pronouncing that we'll be saved from the results, saved from the consequences, saved from the outcome of sin. If I could put it this way, salvation from sin is not just a judicial proclamation of a change in status, but also a change in destiny. I mean, most soldiers who receive the Congressional Medal of Honor, our nation's highest military honor, how do they receive it? They receive it posthumously. That generally, the thing for which they are being rewarded for doing is the thing that killed them also. And and we appreciate that, and that's an honorable thing to do, but... How much better would it be if in receiving that reward, they also came back to life and all the results of the bad things were mitigated as well? Listen, the results of sin and the fact of sin, these are joined at the hip. In solving one, you must solve the other. Salvation from sin, I think it would have a hollow and an insincere ring to it. If Jesus said, I'll save you from your sin, but in eternity, you're still going to get the flu and eventually you'll die and I'll have to raise you again. And then we'll do that again. That just wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be complete. The atonement and the healing of all the consequences of sin, they go hand in hand. They go together. Matthew chapter 8 tells story after story of Jesus literally cleansing crowds of demons and diseases and infirmities. He heals a leper. He healed a Roman centurion servant. He healed Peter's mother-in-law dying of a fatal disease. And that was all in one day. Then Matthew 8 verse 16 tells us what happened that night. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And Matthew's inspired gospel gives us the reason. This was to fulfill what was spoken spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, our griefs, our sorrows. What was Jesus doing? He was demonstrating what a kingdom devoid of sin looks like. Devoid of rebellion and under the protecting loving hand of King Jesus. What will it look like? He said, I'll give you a little preview. No demons, no disease, no infirmities, no sin, no sorrow, no pains, no griefs. And he demonstrated that. Now, where do the prosperity gospel heretics go wrong? They go wrong because they want to deal with disease without dealing with sin. You must deal with sin in order to deal with disease. By the way, this fits the overall picture of Isaiah so beautifully, so perfectly as we would expect it to. How does Isaiah picture Israel in the mire of their own sinfulness at the very beginning of the book? Don't turn here, but just listen. Isaiah 1, 5 and 6. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. Same Hebrew word as griefs. And the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. 
But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out, they're bound up or softened with oil. What is God picturing a sickly, sinful Israel as? As as a person who is ill and sick and dying from head to toe who needs the healing touch of a Savior. Our contrast is, is that we're rescued from results of sin. We are rescued and He has removed results of sin. In fact, verse 4, it's important to understand this word surely. It's a conjunction which emphasizes something that's unexpected. In fact, it can be translated however. The previous phrase says, we esteemed him not. In other words, we didn't respect him. But however, surely he has borne our griefs anyway. Verse 3, he was despised, he was rejected, we esteemed him not. In other words, we didn't hold him in high regard, we didn't hold him in respect. But regardless of what you think you saw at the cross, regardless of what you think was happening because of something bad supposedly that Jesus did, regardless of all of that, regardless of the fact that he would be counted as a criminal, what was really happening was that he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. And Christ was utterly alone in this substitution, there was no one to be with him, not even God, for it was God who was turning his wrath on him. The judicial robes of God, they were on, the court was in session, a guilty verdict was rendered as God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Second Corinthians 5, Christ has borne and he has carried in himself in his death, all that sin has done and all that sin can do to you. By this substitutionary death, Christ is purchasing for us a future in which we live with him in a kingdom that is perfect, that is in harmony and perfect unity and communion with God himself. And as Revelation 22 promises, there will no longer be anything accursed. That is not just a judicial decree that sin is taken care of. It is the reality that all of the results of sin will be nullified, will be remade. Even creation will be remade. Christ dealt with every consequence, every aspect of our need, every moral wrong, every physical infirmity, every potential result of sin will be gone because of him. There's a second contrast that we see in the second half of verse four. Again, we're not going to be pithy. We're going to be accurate. Here's the contrast. We deserve to be struck by God and are not. We deserve to be struck by God and are not. And here's the contrast. He did not deserve to be struck by God and was. He did not deserve to be struck by God and and was. We deserve to be struck by God and are not. And he did not deserve to be struck by God and was. Second half of verse four, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Reading as a future reader, the Jewish reader of Isaiah 53 identifies as one who has rejected the idea of Christ as Messiah. And yet when knowing what happened to Christ because of our New Testament record and comparing this to Isaiah 53, the reader remembers what Israel did to Christ. You see, when Christ suffered, Israel thought that he was paying for his own sins, that Christ must surely be guilty of something. Having been in conspiracy with the chief priest, Judas was willing to arrange a a situation to arrest Jesus just for 30 pieces of silver to sell him out. The man with whom he had been night and day for three and a half years. 
Now, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the leaders in Israel, they were curious about him. They were curious about who he was. They inquired of John the Baptist. They asked. But over time, it became very clear to them who he is. They saw his thousands of miracles. They never questioned them one time, by the way. They heard his preaching. Some among them did believe, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, even some Pharisees. But most of them, knowing who he is, knowing that he's the Messiah of God, didn't want to give up the power, the control, the prestige, the riches they had in their religious positions. So how did this go down? What happened that horrible night in that early morning? Jesus was tried before the Jews. He was tried before the Romans. And there is a stark contrast between these two, as we'll see. But John 18 records that after he was arrested, Jesus was brought to Annas in the middle of the night. He was the father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. Annas was still really running the religious show as the former high priest. He was questioned and condemned for his teaching. He was questioned and condemned for those who followed after him. And he would be sent on to the high priest under the assumption of guilt with the intention of creating a situation in which a legal death penalty could be given. So he was brought to Caiaphas, the actual high priest, who accused Jesus of blasphemy against God because Jesus had claimed to be the Christ, the Son of God. And so to make a, a pretense, a show, a circus, as it were, of obeying the law of Moses, the leadership tried in the middle of the night to get false witnesses to come forward against Jesus, and they weren't very good at it. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And so Caiaphas, the high priest, he asked Christ, are you the Christ? Jesus said to him, you have said so. I love that. You said it. Yeah, it's true. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, he is the religious leader of Israel. What should he have said? He should have said, hallelujah, the Messiah has come. He's here. Bring him a robe. Bring him all that he needs. But instead, he puts on this big drama and he tears his robes and he says, oh, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. Some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? And after these two highly unofficial and highly shady gatherings, they finally put together a quick kind of official trial with all the chief priests and elders. And what was the judgment? They would recommend to their Roman rulers that Jesus be executed. So Jesus is taken to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who listened to the case against Christ. Now the Jews know that Pilate isn't going to care one way or another if a, clan, if a man claims to be God, because Pilate doesn't believe in that God anyway. So, he says to the leaders, what accusations do you bring against this man? And they answer very rebelliously, if he wasn't guilty of something, we wouldn't have brought him to you. But the implicit accusation, that he's not going to care whether he claims to be God. What he's going to care about is whether he claims to be king. The accusation is that of sedition, of rebellion against Rome. And so the Jews were out to convince Pilate that Jesus, who claimed to be the king of the Jews, was also out to go against Caesar. 
And so Pilate asked Jesus, really the only question that, that was pertinent to Pilate's job, are you the king of the Jews? John eight thirty six records Jesus' answer, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. And the implicit suggestion here is, and winning, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So his answer is, Jesus is a king, but he's not trying to convince people to topple Rome. And so Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. You can be king of everything you want as long as you're not trying to take over Rome. And so in the political move to get the heat off of himself, Pilate learned that Jesus was a Galilean. Ah, he starts thinking, technically, this was out of his jurisdiction. And technically, Herod Antipas, who is a fellow Roman ruler and the governor, the tetrarch over Galilee, happens to be in Jerusalem. And so Pilate says, you know, I I think we should transfer jurisdiction to the right person. That way I don't have to make this decision and I don't have to get nailed for this. And so he's taken to Herod. And Herod really wanted to see him because Jesus was like a circus freak to him. That Jesus had done all these things and he believed it and he wanted to see him do something. He wanted to see him do a trick. Ultimately, Herod and the soldiers treated Jesus with with contempt and mocking, but Herod didn't condemn Jesus either. So he sends him back to Pilate. Now, during this last trial, Pilate's on his official judge's seat and his wife sends word to him. Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So Pilate, ah, he didn't get to be governor because he was dumb. He traditionally released one prisoner at Passover. Look at the calendar. Ah, it's Passover. And so he's going to show kindness to the Jews. And so he says, hey, I have an idea. We have two guys we could release. We have Barabbas, this horrible, disgusting murderer, Or Jesus, this guy who's been healing and being really kind of a nice guy. Which one do you want me to release? And the crowd wouldn't relent. Pilate asked, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And Pilate argued with the crowd, why? What evil has he done? They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And finally, Pilate saw that he was just going to cause a riot if he didn't give in. So famously, he takes a basin of water and he washes his hands ceremonially and says, I am innocent of this man's blood. And one of the stunning features of Isaiah 53 is how well it predicts what would happen next. The Gospel of Matthew records, all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And Pilate gave them Barabbas the guilty and turned Jesus over to the centurion unit for execution. And not only was Jesus crucified, he was crucified between two criminals as if he were the worst of them. Now, what was the difference between these trials? Jesus was tried three times by the Jews. Guilty, guilty, guilty. He was tried three times by the Gentiles. Innocent, innocent, innocent. And what did the Jews think? What did they think? Exactly what Isaiah said they would think. They esteemed him. It means they judged him to be under the judgment of God, stricken for his own sins. This is Jesus of whom Peter said he committed no sin. This is Jesus of whom the writer of Hebrews says he was tempted as we are yet without sin. This is Jesus of whom the angel Gabriel says he will be called holy. This is Jesus of whom John said, in him there is no sin. And this is Jesus who said about himself, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. 
Jesus did not deserve to be struck by God, and yet he was. But you, you did deserve to be struck by God because you have always sinned. You have always lied. You have always cheated. You have cursed God. You have disobeyed your mother and your father. You have rebelled against authority. You have been difficult. You have been harsh. You have had a bad attitude. You have been unforgiving. You have been bitter. You have been terrible. You have never done what's pleasing to God. And yet you're not struck by him. Why? The wonderful, marvelous grace of God. And we see this in our third contrast, the we and he. We earned physical and spiritual torment and did not receive it. We earned physical and spiritual torment and do not receive it. And he did not earn physical and spiritual torment and received it. We earned physical and spiritual torment and do not receive it. And he did not earn physical and spiritual torment and received it. Verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Only a prophecy 700 years before Christ is that's inspired by God and that is through a prophet truly commissioned by God would use language so specific as to tell us exactly what would happen to Christ and what did happen. He was pierced. Christ was pierced as the Roman nails went through his wrists and his feet. He was pierced as his side was speared. But this verse starts with a conjunction. But he was pierced for our transgressions, meaning we thought he was stricken by God for his own sins, but actually, and this is the great realizing moment of the gospel, this is when the light comes on, actually he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities, not his own. Now, why did Jesus have to be tormented? Why did he have to die? Well, this was the standard that God originally set out to Adam, that if Adam sinned, he was impure, he was unholy. And the only way to purge evil is to get rid of it, to kill it. The wages of sin is what? Death. But a more subtle question, why couldn't God just put Jesus, or any person for that matter, through some sort of punitive penance, some sort of psychological or invisible spiritual torment for a period of time until sin was atoned for. Why did he have to die? Well, God made mankind as physical, spiritual beings to enjoy his goodness, his creation, and his presence forever. And so in rejecting God, the God of goodness, the God of creation, in rejecting the delight of his presence because we love our sin the just retribution for sin will include the physical, spiritual torment of the whole person. See, God made humanity in his own image. We are immortal. Every human being who has ever been born is still alive, still exists, is still conscious, is still aware, is still cognizant. Like God, human beings never go out of existence. And since God's plan always has been to create a perfect World to be enjoyed by perfect physical, spiritual humanity. He is therefore designated eternal punishment in both body and spirit for those who would choose to stay enslaved to sin, to stay in the state of rebellion against God, to refuse to honor and obey Christ. So listen carefully. The rebellious of mankind won't just be snuffed out. 
We're immortal. We're not going to be annihilated. You won't just get some sort of floating amorphous existence after death. Revelation 20 says that God will resurrect all of the unsaved dead into bodies with which to experience an undying death. And this is in a place where the worms that eat dead bodies never die because the body never dies. And where the flames of the torment of hell are never extinguished. You know, in humanity, in our situations, even in the worst of circumstances, we sort of adapt. We get used to things. Even if you're bedridden or if you have a horrible disease or some horrible situation, you begin to adapt and find little comforts and find little joys and find little ways to kind of adjust. There will be no adjusting. The millionth day of judgment will be just as horrifying as the first moment. There won't be an adjustment. There won't be getting used to this. Because God offered a physical, spiritual existence for all of eternity in his presence on a glorious earth. And if you reject that, then you get the opposite. Now, someone might ask, why is God so harsh? A better question is, why is God so holy? He is holy. Well, why? Why is it that if you tell a lie one time and never repent, you are worthy of hell? Why is it that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you are worthy of judgment? Why is it that if you have a, an angry thought towards somebody else in your heart and don't repent, you are worthy of the judgment of the fires of hell? Why is that? Why is God so holy? How can you take back a lie? You have violated the holy standard of God and saying sorry doesn't take it back. It doesn't undo it. How can you take back wicked sexual immorality? There's nothing you can do to undo it. It's there. You've done it. How can you take back a murder? You've taken a life and that person for all of eternity will never be unmurdered. So what have you earned? You have earned physical and spiritual torment in which your body will only know the pain and anguish of agony in which your only experience of God will be his furious wrath, in which you only experience creation as a place of torment. But if you've placed your faith in Christ, what do you get instead? One of these days, you'll sit down or lie down and you'll close your eyes for a brief moment, a blink, really, and you'll awaken to the glories of a heavenly, kingly, future a future in which you'll experience the physical spiritual delights of all that god originally meant for you to have the delights of a new heaven a new earth a new jerusalem a new body a new sinlessness a new kingdom listen jesus wasn't kidding in revelation 21 5 when he says behold i make all things new that's what you get but if you're thinking you say wait a minute if i can't ever undo my sin If I can't ever pay for my sin, who's going to do it? Jesus had to experience the physical torment. He was pierced. He had to experience the spiritual retribution of God. He was crushed. And we've talked about propitiation, that Christ has satisfied the wrath of God against your sin. But what happened to your sin? Where did it go? It had to go somewhere. Some theologians use the word expiation expiation that Christ didn't just satisfy or propitiate the wrath of God against you for your sin. He intercepted, he absorbed the eternal consequences for your sin. He rid you of the weight of sin to be able to treat you. Listen, not just that your sins are are forgiven, but as if they were never committed in the first place. 
to treat you as if you had always lived the perfect life of Christ. The Day of Atonement, as described in Leviticus 16, it provided a temporary expiation of sin, a symbol of the coming permanent expiation of sin. And how did God demonstrate this expiation, this absorption, this interception? A live goat was taken, and that goat was to, quote, bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The the scapegoat, as it came to be called, it's like somebody taking a live grenade and running as far away from you as possible so that they absorb the impact of the explosion and you're not touched. That's what expiation is, the absorption of what you should have had. The propitiation of sin, the satisfying of the wrath of God against sin, that was accomplished by the expiation of sin. That the full fury and wrath of God is not letting up one bit. The cross didn't just have God say, oh, I'll back off now. He didn't relent one iota. All of the fury of the wrath of God was thrust into the body, into the spirit of Christ fully, eternity after eternity of hell and torment for every person who would believe is lasered into the person of Christ until the wrath of God against your sin is fully spent until the quiver of the wrath of God has no arrows in it until the magazine of the wrath of God is completely empty and he's done. And it was only at that moment that on the cross Jesus would say, it is finished. It is expiated. And why was this necessary? What did we do? It's our fourth contrast between we and he. We were at war with God and received peace. We were at war with God and received peace. And he was at peace with God and received war. We were at war with God and received peace, and he was at peace with God and received war. And we see this at the end of verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Listen, God didn't just empty his wrath on Christ so that we could now have a neutral relationship with God. Sometimes we use the illustration of a courtroom in which we're on trial for our sins and the son of the judge steps in to receive our death sentence for us. This is a good illustration. It's a true illustration. But I don't think we take it far enough because the judge doesn't just say, case dismissed, I now have a neutral relationship with you. The lawful wrath of the judge has been so satisfied, so perfectly satiated, that now the judge brings you to his home to have a relationship with him, to be treated by him as if you are his son, as if you are his daughter. As a matter of fact, to be adopted as his son, to be adopted as his daughter, to receive all the benefits, all the glories, all the inheritance, all the rights, all the privileges of all that he's already given to his own son. The payment of Christ for sin didn't just square the accounts between you and God. It reconciled you and God such that all that he has is now yours. 
that in Christ the Father has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that in Christ you have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, continual 24 access to your Father, that in Christ you have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Listen, Romans 5.10 says a scary, scary statement. It says that you were enemies of God. And you did all the things that enemies do. You hated God, your enemy, and given the honest choice, you would have seen God die. See also the Jews of the first century. And yet, what does Paul say? While we were enemies, we were reconciled. We were made to be friends to God by the death of his son, meaning that Christ didn't just pay for our sin. He provided peace with God, a relationship with him. Listen, the easy gospel jumps right to the relationship, but the death had to happen first such that God would treat us just as Christ deserves to be treated. And what had to happen? Christ, who has always enjoyed the glory of heaven, who has always fueled the glory of heaven, who has always been the glory of heaven, the one for whom angels would gladly fight, the one who has always been in perfect communion with his Father, in our place, the Father went to war against him. He gave up for a time peace with God so that we might for eternity have peace with God. Listen, when the angels declared the birth of Christ to the shepherds in Luke 2, 14, they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. It wasn't the birth of Christ which won us peace. It was the death of Christ. And even in that glorious angelic song, Even in the celebration of his birth, there is a reference to his coming substitutionary death. And then verse six really summarizes this contrast of we and he. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are the ones who rebelled in our sin. He is the one who paid for it. We are the sheep who didn't want a shepherd. He is the one who is our good shepherd. We are the disobedient sheep of the pasture and he is the obedient lamb of God sacrificed for us. What a glorious truth how wonderful and how marvelous is the grace of God toward, toward us. Remember these contrasts. Remember that we are rescued from results of sin and he has removed results of sin. We deserve to be struck by God and are not and he did not deserve to be struck by God and was. We earn physical and spiritual torment and do not receive it and he did not earn physical and spiritual torment and received it. We were at war with God and received peace and he was at peace with God and received war. The Bible has a one word description for all of these contrasts. It is the word grace. That he received all that he certainly did not deserve so that we can receive all that we certainly do not deserve. My prayer for you is that your life, your worship, your love for Christ would reflect that wonderful, matchless grace of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Our Father, it would be stunning to me for anyone to hear the truths of this passage and not fall on their knees before you. Those of us who know Christ, may you increase our worship of him. May our 
awe of him be increased. Lord, this passage makes Christ so big and makes us so small. It makes us so tiny and him so significant. It makes us so bewildered at grace and Christ so glorious in his grace. And so we see this contrast of this amazing, amazing Savior and we who bring our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions, our sin, our heinous rebellion. And yet while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. And if there would be one or two here this morning, Lord, who have, they have not come to faith in Christ, they have not seen this exchange that can take place that christ has offered to be the payment for their sin offered to stand in their place and to take all the fury of your wrath for them i pray lord that this very morning that the spirit of god would move in their hearts that they might receive christ that they might know the joys of a substituting savior who has propitiated who has satisfied your wrath and who has expiated our sin who has absorbed who has intercepted every molecule of sin such that you do not hold us to account for one thing. We love you and we thank you and might you be honored and might Christ be honored this day. We pray in his name, amen.